when you have the sense of the direction in which you'd like to move, figure out how you'd like to position yourself in that new space based on your strengths and experiences and what you'd like to be doing. And then plant the seeds for that. And it doesn't need to be one big step all at once, just tiny seeds in the beginning that you can then watch sprout into a forest. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. This episode, we're speaking with Dr. Erin Young, research fellow at the Alan Turing Institute, the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence in the UK. At the Turing Institute, Erin co-chairs the Women and AI Project, which seeks to examine the issues that stem from the underrepresentation of marginalized groups in AI. Erin has had a career that has taken her through multiple fields and across the world. On that journey, she's taken the time to reflect on what her interests are and how to channel them into her cross-disciplinary work. Here's my conversation with Erin. My name is Erin Young, and I'm a currently a research fellow in the public policy program at the Alan Turing Institute. And the institute is the UK's National Institute for Data Science and AI. Perfect. Perfect. So fascinating. Can't wait to dig into that. So you've had a very varied career, starting off studying classical Greek and Latin. Can you take us through your career journey a little bit? Officially speaking, my career actually began before that. So my first part-time job while I was still a teenager at school was actually during the summers was as a cabaret dancer off of the back of having studied classical ballet since I was three. I loved it so much. So I feel like I should include that at first. But then, yes, my so my undergraduate degree is in classics from Cambridge University. And so this included learning ancient Greek and Latin, as well as philosophy, history, anthropology, archaeology, which was brilliant. And then when I graduated, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to move to New York City, where I worked for Thomson Reuters, broadly within marketing and strategy within fintech. And also during this time, I studied for my PGC in international business administration. So, you know, this included finance and organizational behavior. Then I uh, moved back to London and I had a stint working for WPP for Kantar in consultancy in brand strategy, customer insight, the design thinking space. After that, I went back to university. I went to Oxford for my master's in education, learning and technology. Then I moved to Paris briefly, (laughs) moved into the policy space. I worked for the United Nations, for UNESCO, within educational planning, the digital education field. Then I went back to Oxford for my PhD, my DPhil, where, and I won't give you my full thesis title, <laughs> but I studied the socio-technical practices of interdisciplinary research and development projects building new technologies. So I looked at energy, digital humanities, medical robotics, and this was in a field of the social science of technology called STS, Science and Technology Studies. And then during this time, actually, I also went to Stanford University in California as a visiting researcher to conduct my fieldwork. And I also worked for an initiative called MediaX, who brought together Stanford faculty and commercial partners to explore 
the future of work, human-centered technology. And then, <laughs> finally there, then I was hired out of my PhD by the Alan Turing Institute, where I now am, where I co-lead the Women in Data Science and AI project within the public policy program, which I love. So yes, a, a very non-linear and interdisciplinary career journey. <laughs> okay, I love it. I love it. Fantastic. Okay, so... As you said, you currently work at an organization called the Alan Turing Institute in the UK. And can you tell us a little bit about the work that you are doing there? So we broadly undertake data science and AI research, which tackles the big challenges in science, society, and the economy. And we collaborate with universities, industry, and the public sector to apply this work. So at the Turing, I co-lead, as I mentioned, the Women in Data Science and AI Project. And we conduct data science and social science research to explore the ethical, economic, governance-related issues stemming from the underrepresentation of women and marginalized groups in AI. So we also work alongside policymakers and industry stakeholders to provide data-driven, actionable insights, informing policy measures aimed at both increasing equity in AI and encouraging ethical, uh, responsible, fair AI in the UK and globally. And so my work day to day is super varied. One week I'll be designing a research methodology for a project. The next I'll be negotiating a new data partnership. The next thinking about kind of the broader project strategy, the next I'll be giving a media interview, the next writing a policy paper, then giving a lecture somewhere in the world. I, I really love it. That's fantastic. It's so incredible to have such a, a diverse day. So why is there, and I thought it was interesting too, where you said it's not only gender bias, but also why is there a sort of these underrepresented group bias that you also mentioned in AI? I mean, it's a huge and very complex issue, but at its core, the underrepresentation of women and marginalized groups that we see working in these fields. Um, and just, just, just to add, women make up only about 32% of the global AI workforce. So this fact, alongside issues we see in data, like the gender data gap or data limitations, which, by the way, for lower middle-income countries is much worse, these can all together lead to bias being built into machine learning systems, which create harmful feedback loops that then further discriminate against those not only not involved in the technology creation, but also not represented fairly. And so I think what's key to say is this isn't about an intention to harm, but it's about the fundamental structure of AI. So existing offline inequalities are being built into AI systems. There's a an influential, a really brilliant computer scientist called Fei-Fei Li, and the way she describes it is bias in, bias out. Right. So technology isn't neutral. It's it's not objective. It's not gender neutral, race neutral, age, ability, socioeconomic background neutral, and so on. It's being shaped by the people who build and use the technology and so reflects their history, their priorities, values, preferences. It's not intrinsically good or evil. So AI systems are biased because they are human creations. You know, if you think about supervised learning, for example, humans make decisions around the algorithm development, data labeling, modeling processes. And then we also need to think about 
data and how this feeds into the problem of not just gender bias, but as you said, bias more generally in in AI. And so Erin, could you share with us some examples of gender bias in AI? Absolutely. So you might have heard about the, the credit card decision algorithm, which gave higher credit limits to men than to women with better credit scores. There's been some marketing algorithms that have disproportionately shown scientific job ads to men. Um, there's also a, re- a really great study I should mention from Joy Brillan-Winnie at MIT, in which they found that facial recognition software identifies the faces of white men, but not of dark-skinned women. And then a really classic example is Google Translate. So when translating gender-neutral language related to certain fields or activities, uh, it defaulted to male or female pronouns that basically reflect traditional gender stereotypes relating to those areas. So um, the example I give is if you typed in, they wash the dishes, they cook, uh, they are a politician, they make a lot of money in a gender neutral language, so Hungarian or Romanian, the translation would default to, uh, what example? So she washes the dishes, she cooks, um, but he's a politician, he makes a lot of money. So, and I mean, Google have tried to address this issue, which is great by providing both translation options, but ultimately this doesn't solve the problem of the underlying data bias, which is still there. So interesting. And so if I was going to break that down a little bit, it's like sort of like you said, bias in, bias out. And so it's like, is the way that we combat this gender bias in AI that we just get basically a more diverse people almost in the data and in people working on it. I mean, that is such a key way. You're completely right. I think the key here is that this is what we call a socio-technical problem. So whilst technical approaches to solving these problems are a key part of combating this bias and broader issues with AI as well. So how we address algorithmic and data issues, you know, we can augment data sets or we can use synthetic data. And what we really need to pay attention to is what is actually happening in our world, our own ethics and what we value in society and and how society is structured that's feeding into these issues. So I, I, I really believe that there should be far greater attention paid to the hidden and implicit value systems that are inherent in the design and development of AI in all forms. And then, as you say, increasing diversity in the AI industry by, for example, encouraging female entrepreneurship and participation in all stages of the AI life cycle. And we, you know, we can do this by opening up, opening up reskilling pathways or addressing certain labor market policies. And I should I should also add that, you know, this isn't this last point is not just about solely increasing numbers of women and underrepresented groups in the workforce. It's not just about the numbers. We conducted some research at the Turing to explore the gender dynamics of AI careers. And we found that women are more likely than men to occupy a job associated with less status and pay in AI. So the roles around data preparation and analysis, as opposed to the more frontier roles that are kind of commonly seen as more prestigious in engineering and machine learning, which men are more likely to do. 
And we also found that women leave AI fields at much higher rates than men. So we need to be paying attention to, for example, tech workplace cultures to make sure that women aren't being alienated and have the ability to reach leadership positions where they can, you know, influential leadership positions. And so how company boards and governments think about and respond to these challenges is particularly crucial. It's particularly key. Your perspective and your point of view, which it's so different. So do you feel like in in, in that vein, like you being from a non-tech background, does that bring benefits? Does that bring challenges? Like how is that worked for you? You know, it's interesting because I I am from a non-tech background, I guess, but I, I kind of challenge this binary tech, non-tech division because it, you know, almost opposition between the two, like this qualitative versus quantitative, because it creates this friction, in my opinion, that shouldn't really exist. So as we've just been saying, AI development shouldn't be happening in silos. You know, it shouldn't be happening in a solely technical space because tech shapes the world and we shape tech. And this has so many implications. And so like the current design of a lot of computing and engineering curricula without any modules in, for example, the the potential ethical implications of what you're building is quite worrying. Although thankfully, you know, there's a kind of move towards this changing. And I also think this technical, non-technical division can encourage feelings of intimidation or of, of not being good enough in you know, I'm, I'm air quoting um, especially if you're not especially if you're coming into the tech sector without a traditional stem so science technology engineering mathematics background in formal education and I I've absolutely felt challenged by these feelings from time to time definitely but I think this has also meant opportunities for me to grow to learn technical skills expand my problem solving toolbox I guess, and and the way I view the world. So I think more than challenged, I actually welcome it. And, you know, I welcome the ways in which it allows me to evolve how I work. Um, And I I was thinking about, and this is is using my classics degree here, but Stoic philosophy teaches that there's this difference between uh, wisdom, which is things like good calculation, resourcefulness, gut instinct, and knowledge. So often acquired skills. And it's, arguably easier to train and learn certain skills than hone, for example, good calculation or good analytical skills. And so I think that's where my social science, business, humanities background served me well. Like, I mean, if you think about the Turing test, it's actually about AI being indistinguishable from humans because humans are so much more than simply acquired knowledge. So do you have any advice for women that may be listening today that either maybe want to follow, try to emulate your career path in some sort of way or that are interested in AI in general? Any advice that you may have? So I think the first thing is just be brave in general, especially if you're thinking about changing careers or, or going into a new stage of life. So a, a certain something I've realized is a certainty of life is change. And so just embrace it as best you can. And then when you have, if you if you want to change career, for example, if you when you have the sense of the direction in which you'd like to move, figure out how you'd like to position yourself in that new space based on your strengths and experiences and what you'd like to be doing. And then plant the seeds for that. And it, and it doesn't need to be one big step all at once, just tiny seeds in the beginning that you can then watch sprout into 
a forest and progress in time is is key. I think it's this growth mindset for success that I really like. Um, and it helps if you can, it helped me to meet with and talk to women in the kinds of roles that you're interested in, ask loads of questions, or if you know that's not possible for you, just read about their careers, just basically learn as much as you can about the new space. And remember that you don't always need new formal qualifications in that area there's so many opportunities now to take for example short courses online for free in virtually any area and I actually you know I think this advice is for everyone not just women it's basically prepare as much as possible so that when opportunities present themselves or indeed you've created opportunities you've attracted these opportunities then you're ready and so I I think from talking And then, you know, if you've spoken to various people, you might even be able to find a mentor who can help guide you or at least role models that you admire. So I was really, really lucky in that my mum was a big role model for me, big inspiration for me in terms of changing careers. Um, So after years of caring responsibilities, she actually went back to university to do an open university degree in maths. And she earned a first class degree, which I'm so proud of her. And she became a maths tutor. So that was super inspirational for me. And so in turn, now I I try to, where I can, help other women, particularly more junior than me, particularly from underrepresented groups in my space. And then I think finally, just talking to supportive friends and family during, particularly during tough transitional stages is definitely important if you're lucky to have that. So I'm lucky that I'm surrounded by amazing friends, particularly really strong women. And I've also had some completely inspirational teachers and supervisors who really helped to guide me, particularly through the tougher times. Our next question is one of those topics we always ask is like, you know, when have you felt like you're in your element? And I feel like you have done a really smashing job of following your ability to feel like you're in your element all the time. Cause you're always like, what's turning my switch right now? What am I excited about? What do I want to follow? But that's my next question. Like recently, where have you really felt like you were in your element? but it's honestly any time I'm learning new things and having new experiences, meeting new people, um, eating new food. <laughs> I just, I love how this always makes me see life in new ways. And I feel like I do this quite a lot in my work now. I, I, I love the feeling of connecting dots that hadn't been connected before to solve a problem or create something new or have some impact. That was my conversation with Erin. Suchi, what were some of your key takeaways from that conversation? It was mind-blowing. She helped me deeply understand this notion of how deeply and systemically embedded the bias, whether it's bias, you know, against women, against minority groups, is embedded in the data, the models, the output from AI. And you know what? It Maybe it didn't matter as much a decade ago, but then the thought came to my mind that we're living in a world now that has AI all around us in ways that we can sometimes see and feel and sometimes we can't. It's just buried there and we take it for granted. And it's got such huge impact. She's almost doing God's work, shining a light on this and trying to more systemically come up with ways to address it. That obviously stood out to me a ton as well. But one of the things that I really loved about talking with Erin is that as she is pursuing through her career, she's just inspired by learning, by the different things that she's exposed to. And she is like on 
impeded by those passions and those desires. She just goes for it. She doesn't filter it. She doesn't think on it or double think on it or kind of hold back on herself. She just says, I'm, I'm interested in this. I'm going to pursue it. And then, you know, she becomes an expert in that next topic, whatever that is that she's passionate about in that moment. And it goes and it grows and it becomes this mosaic of her career. And it's just a beautiful thing to see because it's like, we should also feel that unfettered to just pursue our passions. And sometimes I think we aren't. Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening.